This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. Imagine, just imagine, that during your annual wellness and health check, your primary care provider asks, after suggesting to check your cholesterol and hemoglobin A1c, it looks like we haven't done your genome yet. Why don't we do that? How would you respond? If you have a genetic mutation that increases your risk for a treatable medical condition, would you want to know? For many people, the answer is yes. But typically, such information has not yet been part of routine primary and preventative care. But checking for genetic mutations could tell primary care providers whether their patient has, for example, a genetic variant associated with Lynch syndrome, which leads to an increased risk of colorectal cancer and some other forms of cancer. Or a primary care provider, and if desired a genetic counselor, could offer guidance to patients found to have an increased risk for breast cancer because of inherited gene changes in the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, which results in women having a greatly increased risk of breast cancer, as well as an increased risk of ovarian cancer and pancreatic cancer, and in men, an increased risk of breast cancer, although this risk is lower than in women, prostate cancer and pancreatic cancer, and possibly some other cancers. Following a genetic test, the primary care provider, genetic counselor and patient can discuss treatment and prevention options, including any particular lifestyle changes that might reduce the risk of developing a specific disease or condition. Unfortunately, insurance companies typically do not cover this kind of preventative care and often limit the patient's coverage for adult genetic tests for specific mutations, such as BRCA1 or BRCA2, unless the patient has a family history of the condition or other indications suggesting that they are at high risk. Today, most medical spending in America is on after people have been diagnosed with an illness. However, experts believe that early screening, in many cases, will help reduce healthcare spending because it makes prevention and early care possible. But checking for genetic mutations should not be the only approach. While it's important to carefully target actionable mutations, a comprehensive health check remains important. And while for some conditions, including Lynch syndrome, patients would benefit from being followed closely, there may be other conditions in which the value of a genetic test may not yet be beneficial at this time. Some healthcare providers are also worried that a focus on genetic testing may result in a cascading effect of expensive and potentially harmful medical treatment when a genetic risk is identified. Doctors may feel the pressure to do something, start a medication, order additional tests and make a referral, when this is not really necessary. And in some cases, primary care physicians may not yet be comfortable with incorporating genetic testing in their practices. And in other instances, doctors may question the feasibility of adding such tests to regular office visits, reasoning that in the end we should all be concerned about and pay attention to our health, follow a healthy lifestyle, exercise, and eat real food, all designed to prevent disease in the first place. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. The Youngest in Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal, Oncuisine, at oncuisine.com, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis and treatment, and cancer prevention. For information on how to support this program, visit our website at oncuisine.com. 
And if you are living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. This is the Oncozine Brief. For the latest news about cancer and cancer treatment, visit our online journal, Oncozine, at www.oncozine.com. In this episode of the Oncozine Brief, I'm talking with Noelle Carbogen and Elizabeth Chow. Noelle Carbogen is an account executive at Ember Genetics with over 10 years of experience in the pharmaceutical and medical device industry. She is also a certified integrative nutritional health coach. And as a cancer previver, she is curious about how to stay healthy and inspire others to do the same. Dr. Elizabeth Chow is a board-certified clinical and molecular geneticist who completed her training at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and has more than 10 years of experience in clinical laboratories. Currently, she is on the faculty of the University of California in Irvine as an attending geneticist where she directs the Hereditary Cancer Predisposition Clinic and teaches in the Genetic Counseling Training Program. She is also the Vice President of Clinical Diagnostics at Embry Genetics and is deeply involved in developing professional standards for clinical laboratory testing and variant assessment. In this episode, we talk about various aspects of genetic testing, about Lynn syndrome, a type of inherited cancer syndrome associated with a genetic predisposition to different cancer types, including colorectal cancer. We also talk about the cost of genetic testing, about next-generation sequencing technology, and the potential future possibilities and benefits of genetic testing in preventing disease. On the phone are Noelle Carbogen and Dr. Elizabeth Chow. Noelle, Dr. Chow, welcome to the Yonkers in Brave. To start off, can you tell me a little bit more about what you do at Embry Genetics? Noelle, let me start with you. I am an account executive at Embry Genetics, and I work for the oncology team in the northern New Jersey area. I provide healthcare providers with the most advanced genetic testing information available to best support their patients. Okay. Dr. Chow, tell me a little bit more about your role. So I started Ambry Genetics more than 10 years ago, and Ambry Genetics is a company, a testing laboratory, that's really been a pioneer in bringing genetic testing to the community, to individuals who are looking for answers. My role there is I'm a physician, I'm a medical geneticist, I'm also a laboratory geneticist, and I oversee the clinical diagnostics group where we look at DNA sequence and we interpret that information into basically genetic testing results um, and write the reports that go back to doctors and patients who are looking for those answers. I understand that over the last couple of years, the role of genetics in healthcare has definitely increased a lot. And this increase is not only seen in oncology and hematology. In addition to healthcare, there has been an increase in the way we investigate, for example, our ancestry using genetics. Can you tell me a little bit more about the importance of genetics in healthcare and beyond? How do tools we use in healthcare to find disease-specific information and investigating our family heritage compare? Tell me a little bit more about the real difference between those two tools. Dr. Chow? I think the, the genomics revolution that you're referring to really uh, began right around 2007 when new technology 
we call it next generation sequencing technology, came to the market. And we became able to look at DNA in a very different way. So not just one piece at a time, but in a what we call massively parallel way. And this brought down the cost and the availability of DNA sequencing. So we can now sequence, for example, an entire genome, all of the genes in a person in just a few hours as compared to the years it took us to, to do the original human genome project. So that really transformed the landscape. You refer to the genomics revolution. I understand that prior to the advent of next generation sequencing technology, genomics was primarily concerned with studying genomes that were tractable from the standpoint of size and repetitive content, such as viruses and bacteria, and with the characterization of single genes associated with disease, such as cystic fibrosis, Huntington disease, and cancer. But next-generation sequencing technology has profoundly transformed medicine and enables the inquiry of nearly every base in the genome, helping us to reliably interpret and identify millions of genetic variants, including rare variants in common disease. For a long time, genetic testing was prohibitively expensive, but costs have come down. I understand that this has a major impact on the increase of genetic testing, right? It was. So the cost for sequencing a genome, for example, has come down by multiple orders of magnitude. We're now looking at targets, things like the $1,000 genome or the $100 genome in the future to make this type of testing or this type of sequencing really accessible. And how does this change the landscape of medicine? With this type of DNA sequence information, we're able to do a lot of different things. So you mentioned ancestry testing, for example, we can pinpoint exactly what ethnic groups or the ethnic makeup of any individual and where their relatives or ancestors might have came from. come from. On the medical front, it's allowed us to make diagnoses in genetic conditions much more rapidly and at a reasonable cost. So genetic testing has become more routine and part of the healthcare system. Oncology has really changed also with the arrival of DNA sequencing technology. We're able to use DNA sequence in many ways, for example, to look at a tumor, to predict what drugs a particular tumor might respond to, but also to look at an individual's genome to predict what their risk of cancer might be, their uh, risk, of, for example, of a hereditary cancer predisposition syndrome. There are individuals and families who are at higher risk from cancer than the general population, and we can use DNA sequencing to identify these individuals and families. Let's take a short break, and then we're back with Noel Carbogen and Dr. Elizabeth Chow. Each day, researchers make discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Their progress is made possible with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. In today's episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Noel Carbogen and Dr. Elizabeth Chow. We talk about 
The various aspects of genetic testing, including Lynn syndrome, a type of inherited cancer syndrome associated with a genetic predisposition to different cancer types, including colorectal cancer. We also talk about technology, including the next generation sequencing technology and the potential future possibilities and benefits of genetic testing in preventing disease. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. Noel, let me ask you. You have a family history of cancer, I believe. How has this impacted you, and how has this family history led to your journey in genetic testing? Yeah, so when I was 12 years old, my cousin, who was only 24 at the time, was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. And my mother knew that on my dad's side, his father also had colon cancer at a young age, I think in his early 40s. So she really started to advocate for my three siblings and I to get screened sooner. So at 21, I began getting colonoscopies every five to eight years. That was what my physician suggested at the time. But during that period, there were many cancer diagnoses and losses in my family. Uh, In 2009, another cousin of mine was diagnosed and passed away from colon cancer at just 23 years old. And then about five years later, another cousin on the same side of the family passed away at age 27 from colorectal cancer. So over those 18 years, I saw three young family members diagnosed with the same cancer type. We lost two of them. So we, we knew something wasn't right, but we didn't exactly have answers until my father was offered genetic testing at the end of 2021 through Ambry, and he was diagnosed with Lynch syndrome. So when he received those results, um, Ambry offered blood relatives family testing for the same mutation, and I found out that I do have Lynch syndrome as well, along with two of my other siblings. So we finally had some answers as to why colorectal cancer was affecting our family so much. When you received this diagnosis, how did it change the way you looked for treatment? I mean, how important was this diagnosis, which was based on genetic testings for you? So it was something I definitely was hesitant to do at first. And I was really, I was upset when I got the results. I was really eager for it to be negative because then I could just go back to, you know, the general population in terms of risk for cancer. But ultimately, I've really been able to look at this information as a gift. and. I now can get screenings sooner. And more importantly, I have two children. So with Lynch syndrome, there's a 50% chance that they may also have this mutation. So I have this information to, to help protect them as well. Dr. Chow, let me get back to you for a moment. Lynch syndrome is a type of inherited cancer syndrome associated with a genetic predisposition to different cancer types, including colorectal cancer. People with Lynch syndrome have a higher risk of certain types of cancer. Tell me a little bit more about this syndrome. How does it impact people? How does it impact families? So Lynch syndrome is a hereditary cancer predisposition syndrome, which means that an individual who has Lynch syndrome is at much higher risk for certain types of cancers than the general population. And the two most common cancers are colorectal cancer, which is why we're here today, colon cancer cancer, colorectal cancer awareness month, um, but also endometrial cancer. So cancer of the uterus um, in women who have Lynch syndrome. There are, are other cancers like ovarian cancer 
and some rarer cancers of the urinary tract, the small bowel, pancreatic, more rare cancers that also have pretty dramatically increased risk. Overall, the risk of an individual with Lynch syndrome having getting cancer is around 80% throughout their lifetime, so it's quite high. And over the years, we've developed really important strategies to treat people and families with Lynch syndrome to help reduce those risks. So we can offer, for example, surgical treatments, some medical treatments to reduce cancer risks, and of course, importantly, increase screening at an earlier age um, to make sure that we can catch anything in either a precancerous or a very early stage when cancer is developing and it's much more treatable. And when Lynn syndrome is diagnosed, it is important to make lifestyle changes, right? Of course. One of the reasons, you know, it's important to find out about hereditary cancer risk is that there are things individuals can do to modify their lifestyle. So, for example, diet, um, exercise, offering or, or not taking certain hormonal treatments that can adversely affect cancer risk can all be part of the discussion between a doctor and their physician um, once we know that they are at elevated risk and that there are certain lifestyle interventions that can be really helpful. Now, if you look at the cancers that may be caused by Lynch syndrome, is there a difference in the way you as a doctor would treat those cancers? Well, let me rephrase that. How important is it for you as a doctor to know that your patient was diagnosed with, for example, colorectal cancer, which may have been the result of the underlying Lynch syndrome? Is there a difference in the way you approach treatment? Yes, it can be really important to understand that Lynch syndrome is the underlying cause. All these tumors that are related to Lynch syndrome evolve because of a defect in what we call the mismatch repair pathway. These tumors, these cells are unable to repair damage to their DNA, as well as um, cells that don't carry a mutation in one of these genes. So the biology of these tumors is actually um, different than sporadic tumors that can develop through a variety of pathways. We've also made some progress in terms of treatment you mentioned. So one example are immune checkpoint inhibitors. This is a class of uh, cancer treatments that's relatively new and works particularly well in tumors that are mismatch repair deficient. So all the tumors that are related to Lynch syndrome, for example, that develop through that biological pathway. So Lynch syndrome is primarily discovered as a result of genetic testing, correct? But there are some clues and criteria that really point to this predisposition for cancer, right? Clues to whether there is Lynch syndrome in a family includes a diagnosis of colorectal, endometrial, ovarian, and other forms of cancer in multiple relatives on the same side of the family. In addition, cancers associated with Lynch syndrome are more likely to be diagnosed at a young age. And people with Lynch syndrome are also at an increased risk of developing multiple types of cancer during their lifetime. And when talking about clinical criteria, the Amsterdam criteria requires the presence of at least three family members with colorectal cancer, extending over at least two generations, with at least one person being diagnosed before the age of 50 years of age, and one affected person, a first-degree relative, over the other two, right? I believe that these clinical criteria help identify Lynch syndrome, but without that information, and without genetic testing, how difficult or even how possible is it to diagnose this syndrome? Yeah, so as you described, the majority of individuals and families, like in Noelle's story, come to us because they have these really unusual or atypical family histories, you know, early onset cancers, multiple cancers in the family, 
um, you referred to the Amsterdam criteria, which is, you know, just a set of sort of rules for what families would be considered to have these really strong family histories. And they come in through that route, they get referred by their primary care physician or because they're worried about their cancer risk themselves, and we identify them through genetic testing. The other route for identifying these families is actually through tumor testing itself. So as I mentioned, there are some biological differences between Lynch-related tumors and sporadic tumor. As part of some of the, the routine tests that are run when a tumor is identified and resected, either biopsied or surgically removed, um, some of the tests that a pathology laboratory would perform on that tumor itself could strongly suggest an underlying Lynch syndrome. Unfortunately, when we diagnose you know, Lynch syndrome in this way, the individual already has cancer. That's why we have the tumor tissue in hand. And so although this information is still valuable, we've essentially missed an opportunity to prevent cancer in that patient. The information, of course, is still useful to their family members um, and to prevent, to lower the risk for other cancers. But there are really two routes to diagnosis, either through recognizing a personal or family history of cancer or through tumor testing that's actually done at the time of um, a tumor or cancer being resected. So again, when you look at the diagnostic part, you said there were different ways to diagnose. Noelle actually mentioned that she had a colonoscopy at a very young age. Now for our listeners, a colonoscopy is not necessarily recommended at a very young age, but is generally recommended later in life when the risk of colorectal cancer increases. Tell me a little bit about the standard versus Noelle's case and the reason behind this. You're absolutely right. So usually we don't recommend that an individual have their first colonoscopy if they're at average risk until 50 years or 45 years now. But for an individual at higher risk, they should start much earlier. And we recommend usually, you know, two to five years before the earliest diagnosis of uh, colorectal cancer in the family. So in, in Noelle's case, that was really quite young that she started colonoscopies. Um, colonoscopy is absolutely the best screening tool we have to look for colorectal cancer, to identify early cancers, or even better, to identify polyps and precancerous lesions um, that can then actually be treated at the time of colonoscopy to prevent them from advancing to cancer. What's really unique, I think, about genetic testing and genetic syndromes are that once we identify the mutation in the family, we can then really clearly decide who needs early screening and who doesn't. So in Noelle's case, once her father had been diagnosed, she and her siblings then got genetic testing. And the benefit of that is that, you know, they were all already in early screening programs, which was really wise and astute of her mother to recognize and, and get them those early colonoscopies. But then the family members who then test positive would continue down that pathway of early screening, while family members who test negative um, would be able to go back to just general population-based screening for colorectal cancer. So, you know, wait until 45 to have their next colonoscopy rather than continuing with the intensive screening. So the genetic testing is really the critical piece to not only diagnose Lynch syndrome in a family, but then just you know, determine who at the family is at high risk and who doesn't need those early intervention and screenings that I mentioned. Let's take a break. If you're just joining us, in this episode of the Oncosim Brief, I'm talking with Noelle Carbogen and Dr. Elizabeth Chow about the various aspects of genetic testing, including Lynch syndrome, a type of inherited cancer syndrome associated with a genetic predisposition to different cancer types, including colorectal cancer. I'm Peter Hofland, and this 
is the youngest in brief. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. This is the Yonkazine Brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Noel Carbogen and Elizabeth Chow. Now, hypothetically, Noel's father was tested and received a diagnosis of Lynn syndrome. And while Noel also received a diagnosis of Lynn syndrome, she could have been tested and not be diagnosed with the syndrome, correct? Correct. Lynch syndrome is what we call an autosomal dominant condition. The gene that the mutation is in, her father, everybody carries two copies of that gene, and her father has a mutation in just one copy. So each of his children, including Noel, would have a 50% chance to inherit that mutation. So before the testing, there was, there was a 50-50 chance that Noel would have been found to carry that mutation. And I think she mentioned she's aware of that risk for her children as well, since she tested positive. So based on the fact that Noel's father was diagnosed with Lynn syndrome, and in general in families when a family member like a father or a mother is diagnosed with Lynn syndrome, children need to be tested to confirm or to rule out a diagnosis, right? But when a parent is diagnosed with a syndrome, this does not mean automatically that their children are also diagnosed with the disease, correct? That's right. I should also mention that that Children, all first-degree relatives, are recommended to get tested once a diagnosis is made in one family member. We actually typically don't offer testing to young children. Um, Lynch syndrome is what we call an adult onset condition. Noel's family is a little bit of an outlier in how young their cancers were, but most of the Lynch syndrome cancers actually start to occur in the 40s and the 50s. So we usually recommend that children actually wait until they're adults, they're over 18 years of age, to make the decision for themselves about whether they get testing or not. There are circumstances where we would expect screening to start earlier than the age of 18, and then we would do testing in minors with parental consent, of course, and have that discussion. But usually it's adult children that we're testing in order to determine their risk of their their cancer risks and whether they do or don't have Lynch syndrome. So again, when you look at genetic testing, this may rule out whether somebody needs to have an early colonoscopy or not. It may help reduce burdening the patients too much, but when there is a risk, it's important to test. Now, if you look at the number of people that may be diagnosed with Lynch syndrome, how common is Lynch syndrome? Lynch syndrome is far more common than we you know, had previously recognized. So colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer in the country, and about 5% of individuals with colorectal cancer are believed to have Lynch syndrome. It is underdiagnosed, so we don't identify all those individuals, even with all of the screening syndromes, all of the screening tools that we have at hand. 
Um, it's about one in 300 individuals are actually estimated to have Lynch syndrome, and we identify it far, far less often than that. If you are a primary care physician in a growing medical practice, what would you need to know? Or let me turn it around. What do you believe should a primary care physician need to know about the specific risk factors that point to Lynch syndrome? And what should patients and their family members need to know? Any annual visit, any annual checkup should include a good, solid family history. And that's where a primary practice provider, primary care physician would identify a significant history or a significant burden of cancer in a family. And then they can take one of a couple steps. They can refer to a specialist. So there are hereditary cancer programs, usually at academic medical centers. There are genetic counselors um, who specialize in testing for this type of condition that can be referred to. Um, unfortunately, that, that workforce is limited, so there can sometimes be wait times. And so we know that some primary care physicians are now moving into the space where they're able to offer genetic testing themselves and make that testing available to their patients. I think one of the reasons this hasn't happened before is that genetic testing is pretty complex compared to other types of blood tests that a, physician, a primary care physician might run. But there are lots of tools that are available now um, that can help a primary care physician to order genetic testing and help to interpret and, and implement those results with their patients. So I do think we're seeing a shift from just specialty referral where a PCP identifies a high cancer risk or a possible inherited cancer syndrome to primary care physicians being more empowered to do the, that type of testing themselves and identify patients directly who might have Lynch syndrome or another similar condition. But it is definitely important that if there is a suspicion when family members are diagnosed with the early development of colorectal cancer or other forms of cancer, that they really pay attention and start asking the right questions and try to dig a bit deeper to find out what is going on, correct? Absolutely. Any cancers that are earlier than expected, multiple cancers in the same individual, bilateral cancers, so cancers that affect one kidney and then the other, those are all red flags that your primary care physician would be looking for in a family history to be suspicious of something like Lynch syndrome in a family. Now, let me ask you, Noelle, what has happened since your diagnosis? So since receiving the news, you know, when you do find out, it can definitely be stressful and overwhelming. But thankfully, I was able to have really good conversations with my doctors. I had the support of genetic counselors. And through both of those factors, I was able to really break it down into manageable bite-sized pieces in terms of the screenings and potential risk-reducing surgeries down the road. So I've really just been taking it one day at a time. I've had a couple of the screenings so far. It's also really impacted my health in a positive way. I'm, I'm more mindful than ever of my, my day-to-day choices when it comes to nutrition and exercise and stress management. I've also really found comfort in community. I'm a big believer in exchanging stories and experiences. I've hosted various fundraisers before I knew about this uh, for cancer research and awareness. And there's definitely really something special about those events. And I'll continue to do that to raise awareness as well. And now when you look at your personal story, you've mentioned that it was stressful and overwhelming. What would you recommend other patients who may not yet have been diagnosed to understand? What would you want them to know? What should they do? What should they ask? At Ambry, we really want to test the right patient at the right time. And, it, and it's definitely a process. 
but I would highly encourage people to start asking questions and learn about their family history because I think a lot of people don't even know about their family history. So really picking up the phone, asking questions, and just starting to have conversations. And there's just so many resources out there now with podcasts and social media and community groups. So I think there's a lot more conversations being had. So really just taking your time, you know, digesting the information and identifying if it is something that's right for you um, is definitely helpful. Now, when somebody is meeting the primary care physician and hears the words, you have cancer, they may become fearful, close down and not hear what is being said after these initial words. Would you recommend them to take somebody along to their doctor's appointment who can write down or record what is being said? Yes, I definitely recommend identifying someone that can be a part of the conversation with your doctor. My dad and I joke that we've been to way too many doctor's appointments together, but it's always helpful to have somebody there to take notes and to be a second set of ears. And also finding the right doctor is really important as well. What does it mean, finding the right doctor? Finding a doctor that you can have conversations with and work through the different pieces of genetic testing. So the pre-test education, and this is something too where these amazing labs, they offer the pre-test education and post-test counseling. So there's a lot of resources out there and identifying the doctors that are able to have those conversations with you and help you navigate through all the different steps and stages of screening. That is definitely something to keep in mind. Definitely good advice. I believe too that knowing that you can have a choice in the care that you get and also have a choice in the primary care physician that you select, that is, I believe, really important for many patients. Now, in preparing for this program, I noticed that you are a certified integrative nutritional health coach. How does this help you in your case with your diagnosis and with your life after diagnosis? I took an interest in health and nutrition from a young age because of this family history that we had. And I always wondered what, what else we could be doing to possibly prevent cancer. I think I've built a really strong foundation in terms of stress management and identifying different tools to help navigate through stressful situations and also living a healthy lifestyle when it comes to food and exercise. So that's been extremely helpful in terms of having that foundation, not only for me, but for my family, because as I mentioned, uh, three out of the four of us tested positive for the mutation. So I've also been able to help my father and my siblings um, in terms of making healthier choices. When you look at healthier choices in food and nutrition, what are some recommendations? Well, everybody is definitely unique and different, but I would say that avoiding ultra processed packaged foods when possible and trying to reduce the amount of inflammatory foods and things like alcohol can definitely contribute to better health. Let's take a short break and then we're back with Noel Carbogen and Dr. Elizabeth Chow. Sarcoma. Odds are you've never heard that word before. For the 40 people diagnosed with sarcoma every day, it is a life-changing word because sarcoma is cancer. Through awareness, advocacy, and research, 
The Sarcoma Foundation of America is bringing hope to the families whose lives have been turned upside down by a cancer they had never heard of until diagnosis. Please join us in the fight to find the cure for sarcoma. For more information on the work of the Sarcoma Foundation of America, go to curesarcoma.org. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. This is the Yonkazine Brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Noel Carbogen and Elizabeth Chow. Now, let me ask you, Dr. Chow, who is the right person to request a genetic test? Tell me a little bit more about this process. I mean, who is the right person that needs to take the initiative? Is that a primary care physician, a family member? Is that a patient or potential patient? Who should recognize the signs that may indicate that a person may benefit from this? I think it's really a partnership. You know, in some cases, people are really aware of their own family histories. And if it's something that you've been thinking about or you've been worrying about, then then it's very appropriate to bring that to your primary care physician and bring it up as a topic of conversation. At the same time, some people really haven't thought a lot about their family histories or haven't asked the right questions. And so there is a responsibility on the physician, you know, at those annual checkups to ask about family history, uh, recognize, you know, in the history of their patient who may have had an early onset cancer themselves or, or more than one cancer diagnosis, for example, um, that, that that candidate would be that patient would be a good candidate for genetic testing that their family would benefit from that type of information. So I think it's a partnership and I see patients that come in, you know, through, through both ways, either self-referred or from their primary care or their specialty physician. I do think it really works best when, when everyone, there's as much awareness as possible and people are, are seeking the answers through multiple routes. Over the last 15 years, a lot has changed, right? Now, When you look at the future of genetic testing, and I think Embry Genetics is one of the companies that is at the forefront of what is possible, what are you seeing? What do you think is possible? What would you as a physician like to see? I would love to see genetic testing and genomic sequencing to be more of the um, standard of care in terms of prevention and disease prediction. So, now that this type of information is accessible, you know, there, there's still a lot of work to do in terms of training the medical workforce into how to use it. But I think we're all starting to imagine a future, you know, where an individual has their genome sequenced maybe at birth, maybe at early adulthood, and then that information is available to them throughout their lives to, uh, you know, regularly interrogate and go back to. Um, for for purposes of disease prevention or for purposes even of disease treatment as different things come up and different signs and symptoms arise throughout an individual's lifetime. It also can be useful in the reproductive setting, um, you know, when you're you're planning a family, uh, carrier training and other things. So, you know, there, there are advantages to having this type of information available throughout the stages of life. We hope that, you know, it will get there where where this is really just sort of a routine part of healthcare, and we get to use our DNA to guide, you know, the decisions and the treatments that we choose. Early in the program, we were talking a little bit about cost. And you mentioned that the costs have come down tremendously. And as a result, things that were not possible before because of the prohibitive cost of genetic testing are now possible because of lower costs. 
when you look at the future and you said that you would like genetic testing to be part of preventative care, are you expecting that costs come down even further and that genetic testing may be part of an annual health check or wellness check? Are you expecting that in the near future, health insurance companies will cover the cost of genetic testing as part of preventative medicine because those costs have come down? What are your thoughts? So there are some specific examples of that. Lynch syndrome is one of them where it's been shown in, in numerous studies that we can reduce the cost of healthcare by diagnosing Lynch syndrome in a family. Because just as you suggested, even though there's a cost for the genetic testing, the cost of, that we save you know, from preventing cancers in, in other family members are actually much more significant. I think that over time, we've seen sort of a, a shift in the cost burden. I talked about the cost early on about DNA sequencing, and that was, you know, initially very prohibitive. Those costs have come down quite a lot. At this point, we sort of joke about, you know, you can get a thousand dollar genome, but it's still, you know, a million dollar interpretation. So the, the cost of the DNA sequencing themselves have come down, but the costs that go into interpreting that information um, remain sort of generally higher and haven't come down as quickly because we have to be able to not just sequence the genome, but, you know, turn that into useful healthcare information. But I do expect those costs to continue to come down as we learn more um, and people are, are applying different, you know, machine learning approaches, AI approaches to, you know, these very, very large data sets that sometimes are connected to healthcare records, for example, where we can learn about, you know, what genetic variants, you know, impact treatment, impact risk things like that. So I, I do expect those costs to continue to come down and hopefully reach a place where the testing is well covered by payers who see the value in it um, and is really available to everyone from an early age. Now, you're working for Embry Genetics. Are there specific things that Embry Genetics is doing to advance the field in terms of interpretation and making additional testing available? I think we're working on all of those fronts, and, and we have been for a long time, um, bringing costs down, you know, making genetic testing more accessible, and building out the type of genetic tests that are available. So it wasn't too long ago that typically, you know, for Lynch syndrome, we would only look at four genes. Now we look at that more broadly in terms of a panel of genes. So, you know, typically we're looking at 30 or 40 genes related to hereditary cancer risk. Um, we're also pushing that envelope, and in cases of rare disease diagnosis, we're offering um, specialty tests like whole exome sequencing. Um, the field is moving rapidly towards whole genome sequencing, where we would be able to look at all 20,000 genes or all 3 billion base pairs in a single test um, and have all of that information available at our fingertips. So we've, I feel like at Amri, we have been pushing the envelope for some time to make that testing more broader, more widely available, and publishing our data regularly to make sure that people understand the value of this type of information and how it's impacting health and the cost of healthcare too. Early on, we refer to the genomics revolution. We've seen a transition in which genetic testing was previously something that needed to be done by a specialist. But today, a primary care physician is also able to do this. Now, when it comes to the area of family history, in investigating our heritage, genetic tests from companies like Ancestry.com, 23andMe and others are gaining in popularity. Do you think that when it involves our health, we may soon be able to order home testing kits, send it back to a laboratory, and maybe with the help of our primary care physician and genetic counselor, get the results back? Companies like 
23andMe, are already offering direct-to-consumer genetic tests designed to give people some basic health insights from genetic data that may include so-called predisposition and wellness reports. However, this approach is not intended to diagnose medical conditions. And genetic testing for at-risk patients should always be accompanied by confirmatory testing and appropriate clinical management by a qualified healthcare professional. But do you expect that this will change in the future? Is it our future? I think that's very possible. I mean, the workforce is limited in terms of it would be great if every patient who was interested in genetic testing could have pre- and post-test counseling with a genetic counselor, um, but that's not always available and not in all areas. So tests that are available at home um, are becoming more popular. I think the most important thing there is making sure that patients who are choosing these tests are well-educated about what type of information they can get from the test um, and about what the results really, really mean. And so that, that connection back to a genetic counselor or back to genetics education when a patient is trying to understand their results, I think is really critical um, for, for them to be useful and to be integrated into the medical practice. So I think that's a critical piece that there's still a lot of work to do. So at Ember Genetics, you are, if I understand correctly, making sure that genetic testing is not just random testing, that testing has a place within the medical community and that people and patients can also be helped by the medical community with a correct follow-up. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. The genetic test is much more valuable in the context of getting the right follow-up care. So it's not just about you know, knowing that you have Lynch syndrome, but then getting enrolled in the right screening programs and the right treatment for that particular condition. That's where the power is to really improve lives, prevent cancer, and, and make a difference to families. Now, Noelle, one last question for you. How are you doing today? How does knowing that you are diagnosed with Lynch syndrome and the care that you're able to receive help you today? I'm doing really well, thank you. I, I feel very empowered with the information and I have actionable next steps thanks to the resources that Ambry provided, the genetic counselors that I've worked with. So I feel, I feel like I was able to take some control back in terms of my health, but thank you. Noel Carbergen and Dr. Elizabeth Chow, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having us. In this episode of the Oncogene Brief, I spoke with Noelle Carbogen and Dr. Elizabeth Chow. We spoke about various aspects of genetic testing, about Lynch syndrome, a type of inherited cancer syndrome associated with a genetic predisposition to different cancer types, including colorectal cancer. We also spoke about the genomics revolution, the cost of genetic testing, next-generation sequencing technology, and the potential future possibilities and benefits of genetic testing in preventing disease. For more information about Embry Genetics, visit the company's website at embrygen.com. For us here at the Oncosin Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners, sponsors, and advertisers, for your ongoing support. Your support makes it possible that you can hear this program via PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. And you can also download our program via podcast and streaming media, including iTunes, Spotify, Audible, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and nearly anywhere you can find a podcast. For more information about supporting the Oncosine Brief, visit our website at oncosine.com. 
If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. That is 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. The Oncazine Brief is a global medical educational service from the publishers of Oncazine and ADC Review, the journal of antibody drug conjugates. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from our commercial underwriters and advertisers and the listeners to this station. For more information about advertising, underwriting, and sponsoring options, visit Oncazine at www.oncazine.com forward slash podcasts. The Oncazine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content in this program is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice and guidance. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.